Okay, well, good morning. It's great to be with you, those that are here, and uh, for those of you joining us on Zoom, welcome to the seventh class uh, in this 10-week class on apologetics. So we are rounding the corner, headed toward the end. So uh, this is the, the second installment uh, on our topic of the reliability of Scripture. And then the next two weeks, Kevin is going to be telling us everything we ever wanted to know about the resurrection and why we can trust in the reliability of that event. <clears throat> and then in the final week, the three of us, Kevin, Chris, and myself, are going to do a Q&A panel type discussion where we're going to be kind of covering a lot of the, the big thorny questions that come up when we go through uh, a, a topic like the, the ones that we've been through. So, uh, so we're going to jump right in this morning. Uh, we've got a lot to cover. We're still kind of playing catch up from last week. Uh, so you'll remember, if you were here last week, that we are making a case for the reliability of Scripture. Okay, and we are doing that by using this book, Greg Gilbert's book, Why Trust the Bible. And again, it's a small, it's a small white book, but it is a great, uh, brief, practical overview of this topic. And there are other resources, and he lists a lot of them in the back, uh, that are way more in-depth and kind of take a deeper dive into some of the, uh, you know, scholarly issues related to this topic. Um, but for our purposes, we're looking for an overview. And in fact, what we're doing last week and this week is really an overview of an overview, okay? So we're just trying to look at this whole thing from 30,000 feet, okay? But if you're interested to study more about this or to look into it more in depth, there are resources available to you which you can find in the back of Why Trust the Bible, or you could email me or any of us, and, and we'll be happy to, to point you to some other resources. Um, <clears throat> okay, so Gilbert's approach that we are using is this. We're starting by looking at the Bible, not first as the Word of God, which we all, if you're a member of this church, you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. But for our purposes, in order to build this case that we're building, we're going to start with the Bible just as a collection of historical documents, and specifically the New Testament, okay? So we're going to look at the historical reliability of the New Testament. And if we can determine its historical reliability, then we can actually come to a confident conclusion that the Bible actually is the Word of God. And, and the logic flows like this. So if the New Testament is historically accurate, then the resurrection must have happened, right? Because the, the New Testament claims over and over that Jesus actually physically, bodily rose again on the third day after having died. And if Jesus actually rose from the dead on the third day, well, then he really must be the Christ and the Son of God, okay? And if he's the Christ and the Son of God, then everything that he said is true, including that the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, is the authoritative Word of God. So that's the case that we're building here. And the way, if you were with us last week, the way that we're walking through this is by answering five big questions starting with us as the modern-day reader and working back through the chain of events that happened uh, from us reading an English translation of the Bible or of the New Testament all the way back to all the things that had to happen in order uh, for us to have that. So, so here are the five questions. First, can we be confident that the translation of the Bible from its original language into our language accurately reflects the original? And we looked at that last week. 
Number two is can we be confident that the copyists actually transmitted the original writing to us? Or did they deliberately or not add, subtract, or change things in such a way that we can't really know what the original authors actually said? And we started answering that question last week and we'll finish that one today. And the rest we'll cover today as well. Number three, can we be confident we're looking at the right set of books? Or that there aren't books out there that we should be reading and that maybe the books that we're looking at aren't actually the, the most accurate or most reliable books. So which books actually belong in the canon of scripture? Number four, can we be confident that the original authors were trustworthy? Were they trustworthy? Were they intending to give us an accurate account of what happened or were they themselves, did they have another agenda to mislead us in some way? And finally, the last question is, um, can we be confident that what they described actually did take place? So even if they intended to give us an accurate account of what happened, maybe they themselves were deceived or misled somehow and ended up telling a story that they thought was true but actually wasn't, okay? So that's our five questions and we're gonna move through these pretty quickly, okay? So hang in there with me. Okay, so just as a review, question number one last week, can we trust our translation of the Bible? Well, you remember the quote from Newsweek, right? That we've got a translation of translation of translations that's from copies of copies of copies of copies and copies. Okay, so that's that, that common criticism about we can't possibly know what the Bible actually if the Bible that we have actually reflects what was originally written because it's just copies of copies of copies of copies that have been translated and then translated and then translated. And so for starters, we saw that we're actually just dealing with a translation period, okay? We're translating from the original Greek in the New Testament and from Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament. Okay, and we also saw that that translation process um, for bi uh, the modern Bible translations that we have is an incredibly extensive and exhaustive process that takes years and even decades. And it's done by dozens of expert scholars. And so this is a painstaking process and so the fact that we're using a, a translation is, is by no means a legitimate objection to the historical reliability of the Bible, okay? Our English translations are very accurate and very reliable. We saw that last week. Question two, can we trust the transmission of the text? And when we talk about the transmission, what we mean is the copying of the text throughout the centuries. Okay, so this is another objection um, that we see as it relates to the reliability of scripture. That even if we're able to say that the translators translated accurately, that we can't know if they're translating the right thing. Okay, so the Bible can't be trusted. And they say this for a couple of reasons. One, they say that the copies are so far removed from the originals that they can't possibly be reliable because they're too far removed. And the other charge that they make is that the manuscripts are so riddled with differences or variants that it's hopeless to ever have any confidence of knowing what the original authors actually said. Some critics have said there's as many as 400,000 variants, okay? So, are, uh, starting with the first objection, are the copies too far removed? 
Are they too far removed from the originals for us to have any confidence in them? Well, we, we saw that they're, they're, when you look at it, they're really not quite as far removed from the originals as they might seem. Okay, so the, the New Testament was written in the mid to late first century. Okay, so between, say, 50 and 100 A.D. Um, but the earliest copies that we have of them are around 125, 150, even 200. Okay, so that leaves us with this gap of around 50 to 75 years. And actually, I've got a, I've got a picture, and I showed it to you last time, of P52. Can you pull up that slide? It's, it's going to be the, actually the next one. That's what the translators were working off of. Yeah, so here we, we have P52. So that's a manuscript fragment of the Gospel of John that actually dates back to close to 125. So, so but even that, 50 to 75 years, that, that could sound like a long time. Uh, until we consider a couple of things. One is that books in general were much more precious and much more valuable in the ancient world than they are for us today, okay? So they generally took much better care of them than we take. So scholars have seen that books were used for, you know, 100, 150 years usually on average, before they were discarded and then replaced with, with a new one. Um, so, so from that standpoint, a 50-year gap is really not that much. In fact, we talked about last week that it's possible that we could even have copies of the originals, okay? We, we could possibly have those in museums. We, we can't know that for sure, but maybe P52, whoever wrote that manuscript, maybe they were looking off the very uh, paper that John wrote his gospel on. And that's amazing to think about, especially when you consider that compared to other works of ancient literature, uh, the New Testament has way more manuscripts that are way closer to the original than any other ancient work. Okay, and there's a slide for that too. If you, if you pull up the third slide, can you pull that up? Yes, right there. So just at a glance there, you can see that all these works of antiquity, if you look to the far right, that's the number of surviving manuscripts that they have, okay? So 10, 7, 8, 20, by far the most is Homer's Iliad at 643, but as you can see, is completely dwarfed by the close to 25,000 New Testament manuscripts that we have. Now, over 5,000 of those are actually Greek manuscripts, and those are the ones that we give the most weight to, but there's also lots of manuscripts of the New Testament written in other languages <clears throat> that were copied in Latin and other languages. And then also you have quotations of the New Testament in the early church fathers. So they were writing about the Bible and they would quote large chunks of scripture. And so we had those manuscripts as well. And so we can use all of those and put them together and compare to be able to see what we actually had. And the other thing I'll call your attention to is the time span <clears throat> on those. The time span is generally a thousand years or more. Okay, again, Homer's Iliad comes in the best at 500 years from the earliest manuscript, the distance from their earliest manuscript that has survived to when it was originally written. So again, New Testament not even close, right? So the books that make up the New Testament are by far the most historically reliable on the basis of manuscript evidence. 
Okay, so the second objection related, yes. That is not. So there is a, if you want, if you want to email me, I can send you this, but there's a, the website where I actually found that is right there at the bottom. It was on a website called BibleAuthority.com. Not a, not a source that I would cite in a research paper probably, but for our purposes, I think it provides a helpful visual. <clears throat> um, okay, so with the transmission of the text, the other criticism is there's too many there's too many variations in the text. We can't possibly know what it is. And we saw this number, 400,000, which is a giant, scary number. And on its face, you look at that and you think, wow, the Bible disagrees, the New Testament alone disagrees in 400,000 places? That sounds like a hot mess. I, we can't make any sense of that. But we saw that when you look at the way it's calculated, so it's calculated not just using our 5,000 Greek manuscripts, but all 25,000 or so of the other manuscripts that we talked about. So then you end up with only 16 variants or differences per manuscript on average. Well, that's a horse of a different color, right? To say 16, I mean, that's a very small number, especially when you consider the fact that a variation doesn't mean a completely different reading. A variant can just be the difference in one letter or one word. Okay? So let's look at a couple of examples. I brought some visual aids with me on this one that I hope are helpful. So if you could pull up uh, that fourth slide. Yes, that's the one. And I'm hoping you can see that out here. Can you see it? Kind of. And I hope the folks on Zoom can see it. Uh, but just as an illustration of kind of what we're looking at when we're looking at these variants, okay? So if you look at the very top there, that's going to re represent an original manuscript, okay? The original autograph of a New Testament author, and they would have written this phrase, the only son of God, okay? That's what was originally written. Well, then 100 years later, you've got two copies that are made of that, and they copy it exactly right. The only son of God, okay? Then you move to the third century, and now we've got five copies from those two copies, and now one scribe in here in this one indicated by that red one, the next to the last one, and the word only is missing. He has written the Son of God rather than the only Son of God. Okay, well then you can see where this is going. You move to the fourth century, a hundred years later, and the copies that are made of the accurate copies continue to, to transmit the text accurately with the only Son of God. But the copies that are made of the uh, manuscript where there was an error, well, they all drop this word only off, and you have the Son of God, and then that just gets perpetuated on down the line. So in this example, we've actually got 26 different manuscripts, but nine of those manuscripts say the Son of God, and the other ones say the only Son of God. Well, because you've got one error and eight copies, well, that's nine variants right there. That would go toward this 400,000 number. So, um, so how does that happen? How does a scribe end up leaving out a word? Did he do it on purpose? Did he do it on accident? Well, sometimes both kinds of things happen. So let's take, it, take a look at 
an example of how something like this can happen. Okay, so flip to that next slide, if you would. Yes. Yes, okay, so we've got 1 John 3, 1 here, okay? And I want you to look at the ES, how the ESV translates 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, if you look at the King James Version over there, they leave out this phrase, and so we are. Okay, and the reason for that is actually not a translation issue, it's actually a textual issue, okay? The King James, we won't get into this, the King James uses a different Greek text from which to translate than the other, than the modern translations use, okay? The modern translations use what's called the critical text. And that's where textual critics are taking all these manuscripts and they're comparing them and they're contrasting them and they're looking at, okay, based on the patterns that we see, what did the original writer actually say? And with 24,000 manuscripts and over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, they've got a lot to work with. And so they're able to determine with a lot of accuracy what was actually said. Okay, but going back to our example here. So the King James text, Greek text, does not have that word, and so we are. So if you look down below that at all this gibberish, that's actually what a Greek scribe in the second or third century, that's what he would have been looking at and copying from, okay? So the Greek that they were using, the way they wrote it was in all capital letters with no spaces. All capital letters, no spaces. So those first three lines there are that whole verse, 1 John 3, 1. But then what I want you to see on this line at the bottom where I've made the circles is you can see how this, these letters that are basically the equivalent of M-E-N, M-E-N shows up twice in a row, okay? It's the same verb ending shows up twice in a row. So what happened when the scribe was copying this is he copied the first phrase with the M-E-N ending, and then he looked back and he saw the second M-E-N ending and thought, well, I've already written that, so I'm starting from everything after that. And he ended up leaving off this whole phrase after that first M-E-N. Okay, and so what we end up with is, and so we are, gets left out. Simple, it was a simple mistake. We make these kinds of mistakes all day long. Okay, but the point is, what I want to show you is how this can happen and also the, the fact that there's no, there's no conspiracy here, okay? Clearly, when you look at the manuscript evidence and you can go back to the oldest and most reliable manuscripts and see that they all had this, this and so we are phrase in them. And then you can see, well, somewhere around the third or fourth century, um, this phrase gets dropped off and then it gets copied that way in a certain part of the world on down the line. It's easy to see how that got introduced. Just the same way we saw how the only son of God, that word only got dropped off, we can see that. And so text critics can look at that and they can know confidently, okay, what John actually wrote was, and so we are. Okay, questions on that? Any thoughts on that? Kevin? Maybe just highlight again how that sort of comes together, how textual criticism can take that and say, ah, we know confidently that the original, what it was, and so it's, it's corrected. In other words, it doesn't remain continue to get copied incorrectly. Yes. Well, and in many cases, it probably would continue. 
Let me stop because here's what I didn't do last time. I did not repeat the questions for the recording. Okay, so Kevin's question is, actually, he, he, he asked me to just expand on that idea and how that comes together with how textual criticism works and how we can be confident through this process of knowing what the original authors wrote. And the reason for that is because a couple of reasons. One, we have such a vast body of manuscript evidence to work off of, okay? So if we only had, like other ancient works, if we only had eight manuscripts, well, then it would be, it would be a guessing game to say, well, these two said this, these three said something else, and then these two other guys said something completely different. And so who knows? But because we have so many and we can compare so many manuscripts, then patterns start to arise that we can see really clearly. So they look at manuscripts and not only when they were copied, but also what part of the world they were copied in. And they can see, okay, manuscripts from this part of the world tend to have this variant, okay? And we can see that kind of on down the line. And for the first three centuries, they didn't have that, but then this got introduced and now we start to see this over there. So those patterns start to emerge and they're able to say with a really high level of confidence what the original actually said. So, so a long way from diminishing our confidence in the accuracy of our Greek text, all these variants actually help give us even more confidence to know that it's accurate because we know that it was not some conspiracy where people were being told what to say at gunpoint. And so everything, you know, everything had to match up with this certain narrative that we're trying to create. We see God preserved his word through people who were human and made errors and made mistakes. But when you put all those together and you overlay them on top of one another, then the patterns start to emerge and we can see really, really clearly what, what, actually, what the original author actually said. Okay. Okay, that's good. Any other questions? Any other questions on that? Okay. Okay, we're going to keep moving then for the sake of time. So question number three then is, can we trust that these are the right books? Can we trust that these are the right books? So when we're talking about the historical reliability of the New Testament, how do we know that the 27 books that we have are the best and right books to be looking at? Are there other books that provide a different but equally valid perspective on Jesus and the church? Are some of those documents even more reliable than the ones in our Bible? So questions like this kind of frame the discussion around this issue of canon, okay, or canonicity. So what is that? Well, when we're talking about the canon, what we mean is the list of books that are accepted by Christians as authoritative sources of information about Jesus. Okay, so that word canon actually comes from a Greek word meaning a rule or a standard. Okay, and this, is, this issue of canon is another common attack on the reliability of scriptures. And one of those attacks uh, was made popular in Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code if you remember that from a few years ago, and it was made into a movie with Tom Hanks. Um, and it was basically this, that the New Testament canon was created by a conspiracy. And it was the, all these powerful bishops in the fourth century who uh, wanted to suppress all these other documents that gave kind of a different perspective on Jesus. And so what do you think? Is that true? 
were the 27 books that make up our New Testament? Were they just arbitrarily chosen by a group who happened to have the most political influence at the time? And if other bishops would have been more influential, then could we actually have a different set of books that tell a different story about Jesus? Um, well, let's start by asking the question, how were the books of the New Testament chosen? Okay, when we ask that question, we got to say right off the bat that the books of the New Testament were not, in fact, chosen. Okay, but instead they were recognized and received by the church universally. Okay, uh, so usually skeptics will claim that no canon existed until some council or bishop decided on it sometime in the fourth century. Okay, but actually the evidence shows that Christians widely recognized the vast majority of what we know as the New Testament no later than the end of the second century, okay? And I would say most of it was actually by the end of the first century and the beginning of the second. Um, there was a handful of New Testament books that were debated into the fourth century, but by and large, the church knew which books had the authority of Scripture by the end of the second century. And again, this was based on recognition and reception, not deciding or choosing. Okay, so in the, in the writings of the early church fathers, over and over, when we, when, when we see them writing about the books that they considered to be scripture and included in the canon, they always use language like we received or these books were handed down, okay? They didn't, they didn't have a posture of we decided this or we chose that, okay? They, they recognized that they were humbly receiving what had been given to them and they were recognizing that. Um, so occasionally some of those books were challenged and they had to deal with that. But the bottom line is they weren't talking about choosing and deciding, but receiving what was handed down, okay? So, so what were their criteria for how the church received and recognized which books were to be considered scripture? There were four, four criteria. And they were that they had to be written by an apostle, they had to have been old enough, like written in the first century. They had to be orthodox or, or be in doctrinal agreement with what Jesus taught. And they had to be accepted universally by the church. Okay, so let's walk through these quickly. Reason number one, they had to be written by an apostle, okay? Apostolicity is, is what they call this criteria. And it's a big word with a simple meaning, which means it was written either by an apostle of Jesus or by one of their very close associates. Okay, and this was by far the most important standard uh, that the early church used to identify a book that belonged in the canon. And, and the reason why was simple, because not just anybody could write a book about Jesus and expect the church to recognize it as authoritative, right? I mean, that level of authority had to be reserved for those that Jesus himself had specifically appointed as apostles and for a, a few select companions of theirs. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, Criterion number two, antiquity, or was it old enough? How long ago was it written? And this standard was closely related to this standard of being written by an apostle, right? Because by the end of the first century, all the apostles had died. And so if it was written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, it had to 
date back to the first century. So what we see in church history is that by the end of the second century, there were all these other gospels that were coming along trying to purport that they had new information about Jesus or a new perspective on Jesus and the church. And in fact, what they would do is they would slap the name of an apostle on it. They would call it the gospel of Thomas or something like that. And the reason they did that is because they knew in order to be taken seriously, it had to be known as coming from an apostle. So these imposters wrote these other gospels, but they wrote them a hundred years after the original uh, gospels were written. And so the church as a whole rejected those things because it, it, for starters, it just wasn't old enough. So because it wasn't old enough, it couldn't have been written by an apostle. Okay, and then the third criterion was that it had to agree with the standard of truth reflected in the doctrinal tradition handed down by Jesus himself. Okay. Um, and so it, we, we talked a little bit about these other gospels, um, but suffice it to say, these other gospels were teaching things that the apostles themselves didn't teach and that Jesus didn't teach. And so the church was able to know right away, these don't belong. These aren't authoritative. These are not acceptable as Holy Scripture. And then reason number four, criterion number four, is they had to be, the, the book had to be universally accepted by the church. Okay, it had to be used and valued in every part of the world. Okay, it couldn't just be a book that was used in just uh, a few select regions or a few select groups of churches, uh, but it had to be universally used and accepted. And the only books that meet those standards are the 27 books that make up our New Testament. Any questions or comments on that? Okay, let's move on to question number four. Can we be confident the biblical writers themselves were trustworthy? That is, were they really intending to give us an accurate account of the events that they saw or were, did they have some other agenda? Well, let's, let's explore what the different alternatives could be. First of all, did they have a, uh, a non-historical or a fictional agenda? Could that have been what they were doing? You know, uh, Gilbert talks about that in the, the late 1930s that CBS radio did this broadcast of... Uh, the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. And what happened is it sounded so realistic when they were doing this dramatization of the War of the Worlds that it caused panic in the streets. Like people were going crazy. They were, they were rioting, they were panicking because they literally thought aliens were attacking New York City. And CBS was like, hey, where, it's a story, like we do these things all the time. You know, we, we, we were not intending for anybody to think that this was real. This is, this is intended to be fiction for entertainment. So is that what the apostles were doing, the writers of the New Testament when they wrote this? Were they just writing a story that they really never expected anyone to believe? Well, no. Uh, in fact, over and over again, they very plainly say exactly the opposite, right? Listen to what Luke says in the opening of his gospel. Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Okay, so clearly Luke is not trying to just spin an interesting tale, right? I mean, he, he took very meticulous care to write an orderly and detailed account of everything that happened for Theophilus so that he would have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Okay, John in his gospel at the end said, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, and so beyond even these obvious statements, and there's many more like that, um, the, the biblical authors also gave indications that they wanted us, they, they gave us other indications that they wanted us to believe what they were writing. And so we won't go through it right now, but if you look at Luke chapter three, verses one and two, and you see all the historical detail that Luke packs into that, those two verses. I mean, it, someone said that in just the space of two verses, he's got 21 references to historical people, places, circumstances, each and every one of them were testable and verifiable. Okay, so they, they clearly were not intending to write fiction, okay? What about deceitful intent? Was that their purpose? Were they actually trying to make people believe this false narrative that actually didn't happen? Well, let's look at why that explanation is problematic. First of all, pulling off a widespread hoax of this kind would have been uh, almost impossible, I would think. I mean, all 27 books of the New Testament were written within just a few decades of Jesus's life, which means that as those books were beginning to circulate, literally hundreds and maybe even thousands of people were still alive who had seen Jesus and what he did with their own eyes. Okay, and, and not only that, but if the writers of the New Testament were trying to deceive the world or pull off some grand hoax, what possible motive could they have had for doing that? To make a name for themselves? or to get rich or to become powerful leaders in this great powerful church. Because if that was their plan, I mean, we have to say they failed spectacularly, okay? Most of the apostles wound up being killed for the things that they believed and for the things that they taught. Um, they had their heads chopped off, they were crucified, uh, they endured all kinds of other gruesome methods of execution. Um, so, so if they were trying to perpetrate this, this hoax or this delusion, it certainly didn't work out well for them. And it's hard to imagine that they would have stuck to their guns when it came to the point where they were going to the guillotine or going to the cross, right? You know, it's been said that liars make poor martyrs. So no, nobody dies for fiction. Nobody dies for a hoax. Um, and, and if that was their goal uh, to just write a story or to just perpetuate deception, then they're not gonna stick with it once the jig is up. 
Um, that's just not plausible. The only way you stick to a story like that under those circumstances is if you really believe that that's what actually happened and you're willing to die for it and you're willing to stake your life on it. Okay, what about the, what about the option that maybe they themselves were just duped? Maybe they were deceived. One of the accusations along these lines is that um, all the disciples had this mass hallucination of a risen Jesus. And so then they went back and wrote the stories to kind of, you know, fill in the backstory. Um, but again, I mean, given how many different groups of people reported seeing Jesus, how many different times over how many weeks, the notion of this sustained mass hallucination, it just becomes silly and ridiculous. Um, other arguments are that they were so disheartened by Jesus's death that they just began fantasizing about him actually uh, having risen from the dead. And so they went back and created this legend to fill in this backstory. But again, I mean, even on the surface, you can understand how ridiculous that is. So none of these various versions of the deceived author's theory holds any water. Any questions on that? Okay. All right, well, let's look at, let's look at the last, if you could pull up that last slide, we're gonna look at an example and consider this, this one question well, did the gospel writers contradict one another? Are they not trustworthy because they were actually contradicting one another? Okay, so let's look at, let's look at this example of how many women were at the tomb um, and see how we can actually easily harmonize these apparent inconsistencies when people say, oh, well, all, all the gospel writers disagree with each other and there's all these discrepancies and all these contradictions. Let's look at an example how the vast majority of those can be easily resolved, okay? So if you look at um, what we have up there with the, the, the accounts of Matthew and Luke of the women at the tomb, you see that Matthew mentions only two women by name in verse one. Okay, and Luke doesn't say anything about how many women were at the tomb, but instead uh, that three women that he names, as well as some other women, told the apostles about what happened at the tomb. And so what's going on here? Are Matthew and Luke contradicting each other? Well, if you think about it, there's a number of possible resolutions to this. Maybe Luke is just giving a, a more complete picture of the number of women who went to the tomb than Matthew did. And Matthew only happened to name two particular women. You know, Matthew didn't say there were only two women there. It's just he, he chose to name two particular ones. Um... Or it's possible that only two women went to the tomb, as Matthew reported, but then when they got back, they told other women, and then they all reported the story to the disciples. Okay, but either way, you get the point. There's a lot of plausible ways to resolve these so-called contradictions, and the vast majority of what critics would call a contradiction are situations just like this. Okay, so putting it all together, I think we can see clearly that the writers of the New Testament are trustworthy. They're historically reliable. They didn't have a hidden agenda to tell a story of fiction, to deceive us, to perpetuate a hoax. Um, but when you look at all the evidence, the only plausible explanation for them writing the things that they did was to simply say what they believed happened. 
okay? And we've got to move quickly. So let's look very quickly at question number five. Can we trust that what they wrote is true? Can we? Did these things actually happen? Okay. So the objections that are made here are usually based on the the miraculous nature of the events in the life and the ministry of Jesus, especially the resurrection. Okay. So the first objection that you have is the scientific argument where they essentially say that advances in science over the past 200 years have proven that miracles are impossible, okay? And that people only believed in those miracles in the first place because they didn't understand how the world works. And so they were inclined to believe in supernatural things. Um, And so today, science has filled in all of those gaps for us. And so we no longer need to be so naive and simple-minded as to believe in miracles because now we have science. But, but does this really explain the miracles that happen? This, can science account for any of the things that we're talking about that we see in the life of Jesus? This is what Gilbert says. He says, after all, even the most ancient people knew very well that two people are required to make a baby, that if you try to walk on water, then you will sink, that dead people don't rise again. And yet they said over and over, those things happened and we saw it happen. Okay, so the fact is science has not made any of those events any less amazing for us than they were for them. And it just simply isn't true to say that science has advanced to the point that we can now explain miracles naturalistically. And the other argument is the philosophical argument, okay? And and they basically say, science can't prove the impossibility of miracles, but we should still say that the probability of miracles uh, is extremely small and therefore we shouldn't believe it. And again, this this just doesn't hold any water. I mean, if we were to choose what we believe based on the probabilities, then we would have to just eliminate everything that's unique or anything that is surprising or anything that happens for the first time. So again, the disciples were pretty astonished themselves when they saw these things. It's not like they thought these things were probable is why they believed in them. They were shocked by these things and that's why they wrote them down. Okay, Okay. we're going to need to wrap this up here, okay? So we're going to get to our conclusion as we've worked through these five questions and get to the fact that with these miracles, as we've said, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate miracle, okay? It's the ultimate thing that the apostles themselves saw and believed and convinced them that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And it set them on fire. And after having seen the resurrection, they were way different people than they were before the resurrection. Okay, they had the confidence of knowing everything this man said and did were true and authoritative and we've got to give our lives to telling the world about this. And Kevin, as I said, over the next couple of weeks is going to be diving deeper into this issue of the resurrection over the next couple of weeks. But suffice it to say that all of Christianity stands or falls on the question of whether or not Jesus was historically resurrected from the dead. And if it didn't happen... Then, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is futile and we of all people are most to be pitied. Because the point of everything that Jesus did, the miracles, the teaching, the claims, was to demonstrate the identity of him as the Christ. And if he's still dead, then he's not the Christ. And therefore, the rest of it doesn't matter anyway.
Okay, but as we've worked through these five questions on the reliability of scripture, we've been able to establish this. We have good translations of the biblical manuscripts. And those manuscripts are accurate copies of what was originally written. The books we're looking at are the right and best books to be looking at. The authors of those documents really did intend to tell us accurately what happened. And furthermore, there's no good reason to think that they were mistaken in what they saw and wrote down. So from there, we can conclude that since the New Testament is historically reliable, then the resurrection must have happened. And therefore, Jesus must really be the Christ and the Son of God. And if he's the Christ and the Son of God, then everything that he said is true, including what he said about the Old and New Testament. And so because of Jesus' resurrection, we believe what Jesus said, and Jesus himself endorsed the entire Old Testament, and he authorized the New Testament. And so we believe that they are true and reliable. Okay, so when we make that distinction between the old and the new, that he endorsed the old, meaning that he said the law of Moses and the prophets and the writings must be fulfilled. He was endorsing the authority of the entire Old Testament from start to finish. And we, we don't have time to look at the examples, but at some point in the four gospels, Jesus talks about and treats as historically accurate all kinds of people and stories from the Old Testament. Okay, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the manna in the wilderness and the bronze serpent and David and Solomon and the Queen of Sheba and Elijah and Elisha and on and on and on and on and even right down to Jonah being swallowed by a giant fish, okay? Jesus believed the Old Testament in every detail and that matters because he's the Christ and he's the son of God. So when it comes to what Jesus said about the New Testament, it's not quite as straightforward um, because when he was on earth, the New Testament obviously had not been written yet. But even still, our belief that the New Testament is the word of God goes back to the authority of Jesus as the resurrected Messiah, just in a slightly different way, okay? And that primary reason is from John 16 in the upper room when Jesus was giving final instructions to his disciples. And if you wanna turn there, we'll, we'll look at it quickly. And he promised that after his re resurrection and ascension that he would send the Holy Spirit to relay further teaching that he wanted them to have. Okay, so look at John 16, verses 13 through 15. He said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, so let's unpack that just a little bit. So everything that Jesus has to say is from the Father. Okay, so Jesus has this prophetic authority of what he says, and it comes from God the Father. And he's gonna give everything that he's received from the Father to the Holy Spirit. So you see the Trinity working in harmony here when it comes to empowering and inspiring the, the writing of the New Testament. So Jesus is gonna give everything to the Spirit and the Spirit will in turn declare that to the apostles. So he's here telling them that more teaching is gonna come and that it will come from them in particular. 
Okay, and this, this chain of authority here explains why early Christians emphasized so strongly the need to trace the documents of the canon back to the apostles. Because it wasn't just that they were eyewitnesses, it was that they in particular had been specifically authorized by Christ to teach the church the rest of what he wanted to be taught. Does that make sense? Okay, so why do we trust the Bible? Hopefully that's become clear. Hopefully all of this has given you confidence that you can trust the Bible because the resurrected king of the universe has endorsed the Old Testament and authorized the New Testament as the word of God. So that's why we believe it and that's why we trust it. 